everyday theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Well, with me today on Everyday Theology, I have the privilege of having Jack Jenkins, who is a reporter with Religion News Service. He recently wrote a new book, American Prophets, that's out now everywhere as of even this recording. And we're going to get into that, but just a little bit about Jack. He, uh, I feel very unprepared, um, again, talking to someone much smarter than I, because he's got his Master's of Divinity from Harvard. I do not. Um, but he also plays harmonica and ukulele. Jack, thanks so much for being with me, man. Thanks so much for having me. And I, I, I'll uh, dissuade anyone from the misconception that if someone goes for Har- to Harvard, they are necessarily smart. That is not <laughs> one, thing, <laughs> one thing you learn when you get there is that it's not necessarily the case. So. We found that we had in our conversation before that we had a, a fun connection of both of us in our own kind of time and places serving Dr. Harvey Cox, um, which is a fun thing. Though yeah. you admittedly did it much longer than I did. And by serving, <laughs> well, I, I mean as I, I was you, his I driver was... while he was at my university for a couple weeks. Yeah. And, and when I took his class, my work study at HDS was that I was an AV person. And so while during his class, I had to run his slides and his like presentations. So I would both get fussed at for like messing up the slides, but then also have to raise my hand to ask a question about the slides all at the same time, which was a unique classroom experience <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I didn't have to deal with that. I actually got the fun part where I just was able to drive him around and ask him questions and learn. Oh, uh, cool. I didn't have the pressures. Yeah. Of, of PowerPoints. Um, but Jack, I, I'm, you know, I was, kind of doing a deep dive on Twitter and was getting into some conversations. And I ran across your profile and your book, as well as some of your writings for religious news service, and was fascinated by the topic of the book. So two things I want to do first, if you just let our listeners know a little bit about you, and then we're going to dive into what is this book that you've written and why did you feel the need to write it? Sure. Um, so for me, uh, you know, I, I came by my interest in faith in general, you know, in many ways because my upbringing, I was reared in South Carolina, um, grew up in a military family in a small town in South Carolina, you know, went to church every Sunday, whether you wanted to or not. Um, and, and I, for college, attended Presbyterian College, a tiny little liberal arts college affiliated with the Presbyterian Church USA, um, which is the denomination I was reared in, in Clinton, South Carolina. Um, and so, you know, I was really kind of fascinated by faith when I was, you know, that's why I went to a faith affiliated college and what, you know, one of the main things I studied when I was in college was religion, um, and theology. And then after college, I bounced around. And as I note in the introduction to my book, briefly worked in politics before going to divinity school. And when I was in divinity school, again, I was very interested in the intersection of religion, politics, and then eventually media. And on a whim, uh, accidentally stumbled into an internship with Religion News Service, and um, where I was fascinated to be able to kind of really cover this intersection of religion and politics. And then, um, and it was in Divinity School as well, while working for RNS. And I kind of note this in the introduction to the book that I kind of stumbled on the idea of religious progressives, religious liberals, or the religious left, um, a term that often gets used as, you know, what we journalists often refer to as a beat. It's, it's the core thing that you cover, or one of the core things yeah. that you cover. And so I wrote a few stories as an intern, um, and then on contract with RNS about that topic, and then went and did some other things and worked for some other outlets for a few years before I came back to RNS. And to this day, um, a big lion's share of my beat is still covering the intersection of religion and politics, and that includes conservative um, brands of religious traditions, you know, religious traditions that, that defy tidy categories, and also the religious left. And so for me, this has always remained a really interesting topic of, of journalistic inquiry, because I always kind of felt like religious progressives were this kind of undercovered um, community and a very diverse and interesting community um, that I have found to be both fascinating, but also just actually profoundly influential in ways that I think yeah. have gone uncovered for many years. So that's kind of 
how me personally, um, how I kind of landed in that beat. I can be a really bad podcast host when I want to ask like six questions at once off of everything <laughs> that you said, instead of just asking and focusing on one, because there's two things out of what you just said that I think are really kind of important elements to explore. The first one is I want to hear some of those stories, uh, these these ideas, these times where, you know, kind of progressive Christianity has been underground, but making big changes, right, in politics. But then the other question which will come out of that is, but for so many Christians, they might ask the question, can you be a progressive Christian? Like, is that an oxymoron itself? And so I think, you know, you engaging with this as a reporter has really an inside line to what a lot of people who are in a maybe more conservative tradition of Christianity never actually see. So let's start with the book though. And, and I would love to, what, when you were writing this, what were some of the most surprising things that you found about the way that kind of progressive Christianity had such influence that maybe we didn't even know. Yeah, um, and I think there are several instances. I should note up front that that the book is about the religious left, which is about not only it, it, most of the stories because of demographics in this country tend to fall into the buckets of Christianity, but I also cover right. a variety of other religious traditions that I can get into later about how they make up a key component of the religious left. But Christianity you know, in particular does often play a pretty profoundly influential role um, in, in, you know, democratic politics in a variety of ways. Um, one of the stories that kind of surprised me that I found while doing kind of research on something else was the impact that, um, progressive, um, Christians and progressive people of faith had on the passage of the affordable care act, right? Like this landmark peak of um, piece of liberal legislation, um, that was kind of one of the hallmarks of Barack Obama's presidency. And one of the reasons I stumbled upon that was that, you know, when at the signing ceremony of the Affordable Care Act, you know, Obama used all these different pins that, you know, to to sign his name so that he could distribute those out to different dignitaries. And some of them were senators like Ted Kennedy, et cetera, et cetera. But he kept one for a Catholic nun named Sister Sister Carol Kean. And huh. she she wasn't there that day because she was at the Vatican at the time um, where she had been, you know, when the vote for the Affordable Care Act had occurred, she had been calling Democratic lawmakers, encouraging them to support the bill, um, and particularly Catholic Democratic lawmakers. And uh, this, the backstory that I kind of get into in the first chapter of the book there is that Catholic nuns in particular ended up playing an outsized role in getting the ACA passed. Sister Carol Kean in particular was um, was the head of the Catholic Health Association at the time, which is you know this thing yeah. that that works with any number of Catholic hospitals, and she has you know profound medical acumen. Um, and she actually ended up she wasn't very I talk about this she wasn't particularly impressed with. Obama's healthcare proposals early on in the primary, but later on, as he be, as he got into the general um, election and then became president, she actually was in the room quite frequently, help helping craft what became the Affordable Care Act. And then when they got close to whether or not there was going to be a vote on this piece of legislation, it turned out that you know the uh, Catholic bishops had kind of come out against the bill. But um, one thing people forget is that while Catholic bishops certainly occupy a profoundly influential space in the Catholic hierarchy, um, Catholic nuns poll better <laughs> in the United States. <laughs> they are partic- they're significantly more popular than Catholic bishops and priests, um, at least you know Interesting. not outside. And so they they in, in a in American political context, they arguably can exert more political influence than people think, um, or sometimes more than the bishops. And so. Carol Kean had no interest in making a huge impact. She just, you know, kind of wrote into her um, Catholic Health Association publication, which you know very few people read, according to her, um, that she, you know, despite the bishops, was going to endorse the Affordable Care Act. And what ended up happening is a group of Catholic nuns, very influential Catholic nuns, representing any number of orders that are often referred to as women religious here in the United States, then endorsed with her, basically in spite of the Catholic bishops. And that is credited with giving the traction um, and giving cover to a lot of Democratic Catholic politicians who were concerned that, you know, voting for this bill 
would would stoke the ire of the bishops who were concerned about, you know, contraception access and uh, abortion, et cetera, et cetera. And so the nuns gave them cover and they they ended up passing the bill. And that's not just me saying that Barack Obama himself literally said in front of a group of um, Catholics that he, the ACA would not have passed had it not been for the influence of Catholic nuns. And um, huh. this, and I kind of found that story by accident. And this story is actually particularly well known among prominent um, Democrats, irrespective of their faith tradition in Washington. It just wasn't one that got told very widely because people, again, often miss these moments of impact and influence of the religious left. Yeah. And that's, I, I mean, just the fact that you would kind of mention this idea that nuns are more influential than bishops. I mean, how did you kind of come across that and why do you think that is? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about the American system, right, is that we live in a democracy. So it matters how people vote and public opinion matters significantly. Religious traditions aren't always structured that way, right? We have different forms of polity, um, whether that's, you know, Episcopal polity, which Catholics and Episcopalians and others use where power is invested in bishops or Presbyterian polity, where it's groups of people or Congregationalist polity, where like the church itself has the most power. And so all of these religious traditions exist you know, have, have their own methods of, of power and policing of themselves and, you know, how they structure themselves. But in American politics, who has the most influence as a faith leader can shift pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, for instance, people talk about how uh, with the new, um, with the rise of Trump, you know, the more tr- many of the more traditional leaders of the religious right um, figures such as Russell Moore, you know, this who he heads up the political arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, was actually right, deeply yeah. critical of Trump and you know, just you know urged his fellow evangelicals to not vote for him. Um, and and yet, you know, when Trump came to power, a group of um, faith leaders who were often associated with what's called the prosperity gospel became key influential voices in the White House, and those people had been rarely politicized. Um, over the last 20, 30 right. years, they actually rarely involve themselves in politics. So suddenly these kind of really important voices in um, at the intersection of religion and conservative politics were sidelined in favor of prosperity gospel preachers who had not been involved in decades, if ever. And that happened yeah. so quickly in American politics. And so with Catholic, um, in the Catholic world, I mean, you know, bishops continue to exert the obvious influence they have in the church, you know, that they're part of the hierarchy. But in the aftermath of the sex abuse scandal that broke in the early 2000s, that obviously continues um, to influence the church to this day, the clout and influence of bishops wanes significantly, whereas Catholic nuns continued to retain quite um, a bit of uh, influence, which is probably why, and I'll, I'll shut up after this, but you know, when you watch the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention um, a few weeks ago, both of them had Catholic nuns either speaking or praying um, at their events. And, and while the mm-hmm. um, while there was a Catholic bishop that that uh, uh, delivered a prayer at the Republican National Convention, it was the nuns that people spent more of their time talking about because culturally in the United States, they tend to exert more sway because, again, while these different religious groups have their own structures and systems of influence – what what um, exerts broad influence over the American public can be very different from what the religious group wants it to be, if that makes any sense. No, it does. And and what you said there about this may be a little off topic, but what you said there about kind of the prosperity gospel preachers who kind of gave way and kind of made possible, I think, for a lot of people to vote for Trump. Uh, it was interesting for me as someone who grew up in a Pentecostal tradition that often recognized the the way that Pentecostalism kind of created um, a fruitful ground for prosperity gospel to grow up. And at the same time, most main, uh, I say mainline, but most um, kind of predominant Pentecostal groups push back against prosperity gospel. But when that switch happened, it seemed as if we, uh, in the kind of predominant um, Pentecostal traditions, started looking to those people as authority figures on politics when they jumped into the political ring, which was very strange shift. Yeah, um, that I don't think I was prepared for. 
Right. And, and I talk about this in the book. There's a chapter that kind of talks about this reshuffling of what is often called the religious right. Um, and I, I know I, I've done a little bit of reporting in kind of the Pentecostal tradition and how it's kind of become more politicized in, um, you know, in, in Trump's rise. And as you know, I mean, some of the, the key political voices, for instance, Paula White, who is often described as a prosperity gospel preacher, um, which she, you know, at different times has rejected. As a, as a moniker for herself, you know, she's very clearly influenced by the Pentecostal tradition. Um, right. And, you know, and if, you know, anybody who's watched her worship services would see evidence of that. And you've seen a lot of Pentecostals become involved, you know, people who are close to the president in the White House, which I defer to you, but that that has not historically been the case. I mean, that's a relatively new shift in that tradition in terms of both externally um, showing up in these prominent political moments. And now it sounds like you're telling me internally just people seeing them as political figures. Is that, is that, did I hear you right? I I mean, it would be anecdotal at best, right? And I don't have the data to show you that per se, but in the circles where, uh, where I find myself, it, it seems as if, and I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. And that's really the question, whether it was, uh, those prosperity gospel kind of preachers who really, again, started, supporting Trump and started being very vocal about it, whether they pulled people from the Pentecostal tradition that way, or if it was vice versa in terms of the, uh, they were the Pentecostal tradition that I'm a part of, they were already being pulled towards Trump. And then once the prosperity gospel, uh, preachers and these people like Paula White started coming out in support and favor of Trump, there was a much more congenial attitude towards those people. And and I don't know which one came first, but it's almost as if, as if, hey, if you're a friend of Trump, you're a friend of us, where theologically it would have been, hey, actually that prosperity gospel is wrong and we don't like to be anything, we don't like having anything to do with it. Right. If that makes right. sense. Yeah. So that's where it's a little blurry. I don't know which one came first. They seem to kind of coincide nearly at the same time. Um, but again, that's more anecdotal in the circles that I've found myself in historically. But now you said that you have other kind of stories on the religious left that weren't just Christian. Yeah. If, if and- you can kind of give my audience, you know, one of those stories to kind of show how this is really a broad religious category, not just a Christian one. Right. And, and I should know, I, I do want to answer your other question real quick, which is this idea that, you know, the, the religious left in, in general, but the, the Christian left in particular, the idea that these people aren't legitimately Christian. I mean, you know, any scholar of, of, of Christian history will tell you that's not a new story. The idea of different groups, you know, decrying each other as heretics or um, apostates is not um, particularly new. And yet all of those traditions continue to exist. I mean, arguably, um, it's interesting that the religious um, right has ended up in this alliance of, you know, say, um, Catholics and conservative evangelical Protestants, whereas those groups like literally tried to kill each other at different points in, right. in human history. Um, you know, these, these, these alliances have reformed across theological lines and the, the main um, red lines in the sand that people would not cross have tended to shift it, pretending, um, depending on culture or politics or history. And so I bring that up to say that, you know, these are people who, if you go, you know, one of the criticisms that has been lobbed at liberal Christians really since the, the turn of the early 20th century is that they are inadequately Christian, right? And this right. goes back to this, you know, the, the, the so-called modernist fundamentalist debate where of the early 20th century, where you had you know, liberal Christians um, who were you know, using the historical critical method in their biblical analysis, as well as embracing the prosperity, uh, the, the, not the prosperity gospel, the arguably <laughs> theological opposite of that, which is the social gospel, right. um, which is the, the idea that there's corporate sin and that systems can be sinful and, you know, out of concern for laborers and child laborers, et cetera, et cetera. And you kind of saw this break um, that, that kind of really um, created large fissures in many denominations. And I think it's no- worth noting that because what ended up happening is liberal Christianity for the first half of the 20th century really kind of won politically in a major way. And you know, they were the big influence on the New Deal. I mean, the, the, you know, many of the key architects of the New Deal um, were overt social gospelers, right, influenced by this theology. 
Um, and in many ways, the religious right as we know it and the development of fundamentalists who then later rebranded themselves as evangelicals was a reaction to that. They pulled themselves out of right. society right. Um, in some respect. So, some respects, and then created their own schools, their own newspapers, their own publications and magazines, radio shows, eventually television networks. That when you know the religious right kind of came back into power in a big way in the eighties and nineties, they had an entire media apparatus unto themselves that you know the religious left had you know many ways just been using um, more secular outlets because they had direct access to them because in many ways they were in power. And I point that out to say that. People then were um, the fundamentalists were dismissive of these liberal Christians as quote unquote influencing you know being influenced by society or by secular society or inadequately Christian. Whereas the liberal Christians themselves were like we're influencing secular, we're creating secular right. society as it were. And so right. it's fascinating to come back you know in nineteen you know that was back in like nineteen twenty to come back in twenty twenty and hear this debate between. A liberal and um, progressive Christians and more conservative Christians, in many ways, fall into that similar camp where they, where people will say that um, many of these Christians that I profile in the book, you know, they can't possibly be Christian because they rebuke, you know, this theological position or this theological position. And the reality is that over the course of Christian history, you know, I should also note that there are religious left advocates and, and activists that I that I deep profile in the book who also think many conservative Christians are heretics and apostates. So, <laughs> so like that, in some time, in some instances, the feelings mutual. But the um, but I bring all, I say all that because there's this there's this element of which you know somebody within a religious tradition might brand someone else as inadequately Christian. Um, but as a journalist or as a scholar of religion, you know, you know what you, you, the rubrics that we use are in flux. There isn't even a, um, a, a fully unified definition of religion among scholars, much less one right. in each individual religious tradition. So all that is to say, I have heard some for some time this debate over whether or not the religious left or the Christian left is adequately Christian. What's interesting is that for a long time, you know, conservative Christians simply ignored um, liberal Christians, and, and you know they would dismiss them as anemic and you know not, uh, inconsequential. Whereas in the last few years, you've started to see like this rhetoric ratchet up against you know saying once again that they're not fully Christian, which probably says a lot to, um, about the influence of their um, of, of of you know the, their influence over society and over politics. Which brings right. me to your question about other religious traditions. Because even if you don't think they're Christian, they're definitely religious. And um, but, but even outside of the Christian tradition, you know, one of the things I profile in the book is the indigenous rights movement, particularly Standing Rock, um, you know, this, this moment in which Native Americans were protesting the um, construction of a pipeline. And one of the things that didn't get covered very widely at all during that those demonstrations in 2015 and 2016 um, was that those demonstrators, those indigenous and Native American demonstrators, were unapologetically religious and spiritual in their demonstrations. They called the protest camp a prayer camp. They would begin every day with ceremonial prayers. They, you know, one of the early things that they did to found the camp was they would hold these spiritual ceremonies. And for many of them, pushing back against the pipeline was actually um, a religious. Um, impetus because they saw it as the coming of a black snake, which was this prophecy that had existed in one of the Native American spiritual traditions. And I mean, all of this was, was deeply prevalent in this movement, but it wasn't necessarily covered as a religious movement. And what I note in the book is that these activists have actually started showing up, um, these indigenous activists have started showing up to each other's demonstrations. So, you know, around the same time, there's also a series of demonstrations in Hawaii um, where, you know, Hawaiians or native Hawaiians um, are protesting the construction of a telescope on top of Mount Akea, this volcano on the big island of Hawaii, because they believe that that um, mountain is sacred or for some literally a god. Um, and, and that, you know, for them, I went to Hawaii to like, you know, look at this demonstration, this camp that had been set across, um, set up across the road, that the only access road up to the top of the mountain by these Hawaiian demonstrators, and they would begin every day with a prayer. And then halfway through the day, they would have another prayer ceremony. And then later in the day, there'd be another prayer ceremony. And right, yeah. what's interesting about this is that it's rarely covered that way because Native American and indigenous religious um, beliefs and spirituality often aren't seen with the same credibility or the same or in the same light as, say, Protestant Christianity 
here in the United States. Even though, you know, anyone who attends any of these sorts of demonstrations or camps would see deep and profound evidence of religious activity and spiritual activity. Um, And so, you know, I remember even talking to one of the core Standing Rock demonstrators, the woman who um, actually had the demonstration set up in her backyard um, is what became one of the, the first major prayer camps. She talked about how um, that movement, the Standing Rock movement, has become a really big part of the environmentalist movement in general, you know, the c- combating climate change and environmental destruction. And how she would, she said, you know, she would have these conversations with more mainstream secular environmental activists, and there would be this chasm of misunderstanding between, you know, they might be operating out of a more secular mindset for why they're environmentalists, and they just don't fully grasp the the indigenous spiritual traditions or the uh, spiritual motivations that were undergirding this major movement. Um, and yeah. I should note that uh, that Standing Rock, there was this bartender from new york who went down there um around that time and uh and was participated in the demonstrations and then after the fact had what they described as a spiritual experience and came back um, motivated to run for office as a result of that and then they ran for congress and that bartender was alexandria ocasio cortez who again cites the standing rock demonstrations as a spiritual moment that inspired her to become a politician um, and which, she's Catholic, which, but yeah, it, it's again, a spiritual moment that doesn't get covered, which for many Christians on, and, and it's really hard to have this conversation to kind of like always have to segment out your population. Right. But like the, the Christians who are farther, maybe more conservative or come from more conservative traditions, you know, in my own head, I can hear it, you know, well, that's not a true religious experience, right. We'll throw that out there. That's not true. That's not, that wasn't real. Or especially my tradition might say something more like, well, that's a religious experience that wasn't of God. If it was religious, it wasn't of God. Right. Like this kind of way of, I don't want to say demonizing it is, I guess the proper word there, right? Like this kind of way of being able to say, I don't have to pay attention to it because it doesn't line up with my theological system. Right. And I always find that, and I want to honor the fact that that's pretty consistent in religious traditions in general. I mean, religious traditions throughout human history are pretty dismissive of each yeah. other's faith. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but it, like, you know, that's, that's that any number of wars, conflicts, or disagreements have been sparked by people saying that's, you know, what you're believing in isn't real, isn't true, et cetera, et cetera. But from a, the perspective of religious, um, um, from a, of a scholar of religion or a religion reporter, I mean, it doesn't make it any less religious to that individual, right? So, you know, people are often quick, you know, you, you'll hear in secular voices, people dismiss the faith of conservative Christians, for instance. In fact, right. any number of um, secular or, um, or liberal, um, uh, liberal religious people over the last three years have been very dismissive of the faith of the evangelical Protestants, pointing out, you know, what they see as hypocrisy of the, their stated beliefs on Sunday and what they're willing to vote for on Tuesday. And, um, and they'll, you know, they would point to that, but, and again, the the evangelical Protestants might say, no, like you don't adequately understand my faith, but it's, for me, it's, it's pretty, um, it's pretty common to hear the criticism of people say, you know, that is not of my faith. What I would challenge, um, is to say whether or not it's religious, like whether or not you believe that it's something that matches with your own personal faith doesn't mean that it's not a religious experience for that individual. It doesn't mean that it's not a right. faith um, for them. And I mean, again, you know, I'm, I'm a reporter. I cover lots of people that I disagree with, um, both politically and theologically on a regular basis. And, and we reporters are asked, our, our, our charge is to extend ourselves beyond our biases on a regular basis. Um, but that doesn't mean that those experiences of those people aren't fully and passionately religious for them. Um, so theological disagreement, that's an old story, but being willing to dismiss people as simply not religious, that seems to me just, you know, one of those instances where people are having difficulty really recognizing the experience of another. Yeah. And and I'm with you there. And I think that becomes part of the rub, uh, for so many people is religion gets kind of narrowly defined as whatever it is that I follow. Right. 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 Like that word religion is it, it is, it's, it's my thing. It's not your thing. And it allows kind of the dismissiveness of the conversation, even if there is a disagreement theologically, which I'm with you. 
I want to go back a little bit because there's something that you said that I thought was pretty important when you were talking about kind of the history of this kind of political politicalization maybe of religion a bit, how we're using our religion as it relates to politics. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this, this, you know, the, the social gospel movement as kind of how I would call it kind of won the day in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. right? It kind of made the changes. I think of someone like Reinhold Niebuhr, the theologian who, who made the changes in the forties and fifties uh, and into the sixties as a political theologian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then I think of his brother, Richard, who, you know, people who have done any kind of theological study have to have studied, you know, his uh, kind of sociological study on the different types of churches. And, you know, while they're kind of wide ranging, you know, he kind of categorizes these kind of different sociological groupings of churches as uh, those who kind of exist within a Christ against culture a Christ mm-hmm. over culture or a Christ who's the transformer of culture kind of metaphor. And it seems from what you said, what you're finding is much more, especially as it relates to kind of politicalization is that it's much more a Christ transforming culture mindset of those people that say taking this religion and trying to transform the way in which the world exists by any means necessary well, maybe not any means. That's where we got wars, right? By, by <laughs> politics. Um, is that the kind of attitude that you kind of see in these stories and in your conversations? Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, upfront about the work that I do is there's, there's, there's this idea of a separation of church and state. And that is a very specific legal idea of not enshrining one religious tradition over another um, in, in the political sphere. And also, you know, not having a religious test for people who want to get elected into office, um, those sorts of like, you know, divisions between, um, you know, really kind of privileging one faith tradition or faith itself over another or that of those right. with no faith. But, there, but the question of whether or not faith influences politics is a very different question, which is, <laughs> which is this idea that like, of course it does constantly, every day. And... Um, what I think is interesting in my coverage of the religious left is that whereas within for many conservative Christians um, at this point in American history, they'll be pretty overt about you know, why they are um, doing what they're doing, saying that my faith compels me to show up to this demonstration to you know, oppose abortion, for instance. Um, and you know, this, is, this is explicitly why I'm doing it. Many religious left Activists will do the same, saying, you know, my faith compels me to, you know, call for immigrant rights, et cetera, et cetera. But then you'll have moments where, like, the faith element might be what got someone to do something, but it isn't what people talk or remember um, in terms of how they uh, – about an activist moment. So, for instance, in the Republican National Convention, a line that got a lot of play was this idea that we should stand for our flag and um, kneel for our God. Well, what that kind of ignores Mm -hmm. is that many – Many of the people who um, both athletes and um, artists who have knelt during the American flag over the last few years have actually cited their faith as why they are doing that and inspiring their protest against police brutality and racism, which is, you know, why um, they are. That's why they are kneeling during the national anthem. And I mean, over and over and over again, if you dig through these accounts, they'll like people will have. Um, written on their arms as they do it, scripture references. But that gets obscured because what gets remembered is the demonstration, this idea of demonstrating against um, police brutality and racism, or for many people, they see that as disrespectful to the flag, et cetera, et cetera. But the faith element gets obscured. And so so it doesn't get discussed in popular discourse. But that doesn't mean it's not happening, that people's faith isn't compelling them to do political things on a regular basis, whether those are demonstrations or votes in the U.S. House of Representatives or executive orders in the White House. And I think what, um, you know, faith is supposed to influence for many, for most, uh, most faiths that I've run into, it's supposed to influence your everyday life and extricating politics and this idea of how we live together from a faith that compels you to think about how we live together seems like a fool's errand. I don't think you're ever going to be able to fully remove those things from each other. And that is true both of conservative Christians and liberal people of faith. Um, and and I, I don't see that as, you know, and I do think that 
uh, just to get a finer point on this, while there are absolutely secular activists and advocates who are advocating for a, um, a version of secular society that you know kind of removes as much faith as possible from the public sphere, not from the private right. sphere, but the public sphere. It's worth noting that our concept of secular society, you know, what we what we understand um, as this place in which religion can show up and not dictate was in many ways formed by a menagerie of faith communities, right? Like there are um, the echoes of various different faith traditions and faith values in what we call secular society. That doesn't make secular society a theocracy by any stretch of imagination. It's a negotiated space, but it does, you know, kind of acknowledge the influence that these faiths might have had, um, you know, in concert with other groups. That's what makes it a democracy as opposed to um, right. a theocracy. So I say, you know, basically for me, um, it's hard for me to look at the way we live together in 2020 and not see the influence of any number of religious groups with different religious agendas and competing religious agendas. One of the things I talk about in the religious left is that like, you know, that the religious left functions as a coalition of coalitions that don't always agree with each other or work together. Um, but in moments of, 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 you know, unified cause can come together to have an impact. Um, but that doesn't mean that they aren't, you know, they don't have different visions for how America should look or act. Um, and, you know, they are influenced by how they pray um, earlier in the week in terms of, of right. what vision they have for society. Now, I'm going to ask maybe to uh, take off the reporter hat for a second <laughs> and put on a kind of like forward looking hat, glasses. I don't know, mixed metaphors, they don't work, right? <laughs> but uh, through all this kind of in, in your book and kind of looking at it historically, even up to the present day, where do you see religion and kind of this political world that we live in in America, where do you see it moving towards? If you have to say, like, I think it's going to look like this in 20 years, you know, do you have an idea of what you think it, it looks like through that trajectory? Or is it just, you know, we'll see. Well, it, it, I appreciate this question. The, the last chapter of my book is called The Future of Faith. Um, so I... Perfect. Uh, I, I will know one thing that needs to be acknowledged is that there is a steady rise of what's called the religiously unaffiliated um, people. Right. And they, these are people who are often called N-O-N-E-S nuns, because when asked the question of what is your religious affiliation, they will say none. Um, and that, you know, within the Democratic Party is not the majority, but is the largest single subgroup of Democrats, uh, most um, Amer uh, most Democrats still claim a religious tradition, but there are these religiously unaffiliated groups. Now, what's interesting about that group is that's growing across the board within American society, not just among Democrats, um, is that while there are atheists and agnostics within that group, while that is part of that, that's actually not most of the people who are religiously unaffiliated. Many people in that group actually pray regularly or attend religious right. services. Yeah. They just don't affiliate themselves with it. Or they actually do believe, like they will say, I, I claim no faith tradition, but I absolutely believe in God or gods. And, um, and I think what's interesting about that is that you've seen this sort of spiritual renaissance actually occur in many of these religiously unaffiliated communities that looks very different from um, necessarily where we've come, um, these other more rank and file religious traditions that we've come to know over the course of American history. And, um, you know, I have a colleague at Religion News Service, Tara Isabella Burton, who's actually written a book on this, um, uh, Sacred Rights. And we've, we've kind of talked about how our books kind of bounce off of each other in, in this way, because these faith traditions tend to skew liberal, if you could call them that, because people aren't necessarily affiliating with the faith tradition when they do that. Right. But there, I would guess that what seems to be interesting to me is, well, again, definitely atheists and agnostics are, are you know, a, a growing subset of this group. Um, but there seems to actually be this interesting spiritual hunger that's occurring in these communities. And sometimes that means that people end up in the back of Episcopal churches or, um, you know, a, a synagogue. But sometimes that means that they're kind of creating something new and they don't have an idea for what to call it yet. And so my expectation is that that experimental um, kind of, you know, homebrewed religious uh, fervor will continue to per um, percolate between now and the next 50 years. And I'm, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting things that develop in that space. 
Meanwhile, you have any number of you know um, liberal faith traditions that I think are growing more overtly political in ways that they haven't in the past. Now, historically, Black Protestants have been pretty overtly political for quite some time, um, right. and you know, yep. in many ways, they're kind of like welcome to the party, white liberal Christians. Um, but, <laughs> um, but like, uh, but, but but you know, more liberal leaning white Christians, whether they're mainline denominations like Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Lutheran, etc., or um, even progressive evangelicals are starting to get more involved, and faith is articulated often through these sort of more political acts or political proclamations in a way that the religious right is actually deeply comfortable with. But the you know these liberal white Christians actually had gotten uncomfortable with over the last 30, 40 years, and um, so I think you're going to see you know a more overtly politicized faith, um, and I think that often comes from the fact that you know our our population in general is growing more diverse. And as it grows more diverse, so too will these various different religious traditions be more represented. You know, the, you know, Muslim populations are growing. Hindu populations are growing. Buddhist populations are growing. And as they continue to grow, they will inevitably exert some form of political influence, whether that's overt in the way that the religious right often expresses it or the religious left in many right. degrees, or more kind of what we were talking about earlier. De facto, these are the values that we hold dear and what we would want to exert as much as we can um, in public society. And so I think you're going to see like it won't, you know, we've talked about a lot. The uh, There's you know, this conversation about the end of white Christian America, right? This idea of one, which is for the record, side note, kind of a fool's errand, because the reality is that all these different religious, these Christian groups, when we first, you know, when they all kind of immigrated here, Back in the 1700s, they all fought with each other all the time, and we're like literally at each other's throat. <laughs> this like alliance between white Christians is a very new thing. That's um, kind yeah, of like, like yeah. you, know, you know, the you know white Protestants were burning crosses in Catholics' yards like less than a hundred years ago. But like, um, and so in you know, many ways, this it's a it's a construction of a vision of white Christian America. Um, but that that's going to be that that will likely um, kind of recede from American. At least those are the trends that we journalists are looking at. It will recede from American hegemony, and the replacement will be a much more diverse space. And yeah. that requires a lot of what I'm already seeing on the religious left, which is a lot of negotiation between different faith groups that might not match up on a lot of things, but have enough in common to be able to you know either work together around political things or even just cultural things. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is that for the religious left, you know, a lot of these alliances um, between different communities got forged in, in, in small little local ways. You know, this synagogue and this mosque needed to solve a problem. So they worked together. And then those communities were able to, you know, work with the immigrant church down the street. And then um, the Buddhist center also showed up to hang out with them on, on, you know, some, um, some potluck dinner. Right. And then those communities became something that can march together to say, you know, pass a local ordinance. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the future and not a lot of what I think the religious right has been um, sometimes fighting for, which is kind of this hearkening back to an older right. form of uh, Christian hegemony that, you know, that, that definitely exerted broad influence um, throughout the 20th century, but just doesn't see, I, I would be surprised if it continues to do so 50 years from now. But I, and I'll just close on this, which is to say, I also don't think conservative religious communities are going to evaporate. I don't think that they're right. going to go away. Right. If anything, I think they're going to be become very strong and crystallized. Um, but I, I think it, you know, their their role in society will look different than it does in 2020. Um, if, if that's again, just looking at the trends that I've been seeing for the past few. And again, to be anecdotal, I think what you said about the nuns, the N O N E S, those nuns, is something that in in my space in my positions in the past I've seen a rise of nuns especially as it relates to kind of like millennials and gen z who do identify as christian broadly but don't identify with the church mm. and and there's a a large group of christians that I find that say I uh, again, anecdotally circles that I find myself in that just kind of like back up what you're saying there, this reality of I'm not comfortable being in a church because a lot of times politically the church has kind of been one hands two sided, I guess, right? Like to say like, Hey, we're going to vote for people who do the exact things opposite of the way that we're told to do things. 
And as, as kind of the nuns, as the millennials and Gen Z become more kind of political, they go, this, I can't live in this duality any longer. A church that does not fit and do what it says the words of Jesus say to do. And so I'm just going to just follow Jesus. But if someone asks me who I'm affiliated with, I'm just going to tell them I'm not affiliated with anyone. Because it's easier to actually say I'm not affiliated with anyone and do that work, like think about things as a Christian, than sometimes it is to say I'm affiliated with that group and I'm still trying to do this work. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I see that. So one last one last question here for you before we end. Any any other kind of most surprising thing you found in your research for American prophets that you can kind of tease for our listeners so I can tell them to go buy the book? So, um, you know, one of the interesting things that I found is, and this becomes clear over the course of the book, there are certain movements um, in on the left that the religious left has been pivotal in, has been crucial in helping guide and um, and, and leading. There have been others in which the religious left has had to kind of re-earn credibility, um, you know, even among other activists where, you know, the church might have lost standing or lost credibility because of, you know, what they describe as past failures. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about is uh, what happened in Ferguson and then in Charlottesville in um, among progressive religious communities where some of the earliest activists in Ferguson weren't um, led by um, people of faith. What happened instead is that people of faith ended up coming alongside those demonstrators and those activists, um, you know, kind of saying, how can we help? Which was a bit of a role reversal in racial justice movements that have often been led by people of faith, particularly historically black yeah. Protestants. Um, but what ha- that has led to is this curious and fascinating moment in which um, the religious left and progressive people of faith are marching alongside or protecting demonstrators. You know, one thing we noticed in Ferguson is that some a lot of times pastors would literally put themselves in between police and demonstrators as a way of de-escalating tension. Sometimes they were shot with rubber bullets. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, like, and then when the George Floyd demonstrations cropped up again this year, we actually saw that pattern repeat where you saw you know, churches in Minneapolis open up to offer themselves as a respite for demonstrators, as a medical space. While they weren't necessarily the ones on the streets, although many of them were, they were trying to um, offer aid to those that they could. And I think you know, for me, what's telling is that um, when you know, those demonstrators were cleared from Lafayette Square right outside of the White House um, you know, uh, in June 1st, right before the president walked across that park and stood in front of St. John's Church um, to hold up a Bible for a photo op. Among those demonstrators were clergy who were putting themselves again in between the demonstrators and police, as well as Episcopal, at least one Episcopal priest and a seminarian who were at St. John's, who were forcibly cleared from that church by police with batons and gas, um, you know, right before the president walked over there. Because and who were aiding those demonstrators, um, and you know that story often gets obscured. But you know there's a reason that the Episcopal Diocese of Washington was so furious about that act by the president is because I mean literally their own priests were cleared from the church right. before the president got there. <laughs> right. And but but I it, I think one thing I really thought was interesting is and, and this this is these are different groups who are trying to aid the racial justice movement in different ways. Um, but that, you know, Ray, Reverend Tracy Blackman, who's the story I kind of really chronicle in my chapter that looks at the racial justice, modern racial justice movement, you know, she talked about how in Ferguson, um, many of the demonstrators were so grateful that she was there, but they came to her and kind of had these stories of how they felt abandoned by the church um, at some point in their past for any number of reasons. And so early on in her activism, in Ferguson, she would basically hold these sort of atonement services or, or, or mea culpa services as part of her demonstrations, you know, trying to lamenting the failures of the church to not be there for so many of these activists in their yeah. youth. And, yeah. um, and, and, you know, that was, and so that was a credibility they had to re-earn. And, um, and for me, that was such an interesting story of faith where, you know, the, 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 the correct move wasn't to assume, you know, from the perspective of these advocates, the correct move wasn't to assume that you should be in charge. It was this very sacrificial approach to faith where it said, you know, if we're going to be able to participate in this, we have to be, um, we have to sacrifice and, and show up 
and earn the credibility that we may have lost. Um, and I, I think that says a lot about, you know, where, um, you know, the, the complicated nature of the religious left, where there are moments in which they are the ones leading whole sections and movements within the left. And there are other moments in which they're trying, um, you know, they're, they're trying to come alongside um, because of, you know, according to them, uh, missteps by both, you know, the Christian church and faith communities in general over the last, you know, however many decades. Yeah. What I love about, you know, your work and even this conversation for a lot of people, they might go, it's a little bit different from a normal podcast that we do, but this is probably the most, uh, I won't want to say the most, but it's becoming one of the most like everyday topics of Christians is how do we engage with our political world? And it's one that often I find that people become so isolated and insulated in their own kind of bubbles and worlds that they forget how religion uh, in general, but Christianity especially like exist in different kind of frames of mind and working that in order for us to best kind of ask, how do we do this? How do we do this Christianity thing in everyday sense in relation to politics? We have to be willing to have these conversations and hear what other people are doing and why they're doing it. Or we're going to be back to, unfortunately, I think the burning crosses in people's yards reality that the, the more that we push that away, I think the more we're kind of getting towards that reality as we kind of, you know, see here and there with different Christian groups yelling and screaming at each other and it does no one any good. Right. 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 But Jack, I appreciate so much you taking the time to do this with me. Uh, I want to encourage everyone to go get your new book, American Prophets. I think it's everywhere books are sold, I assume, right? Yes. Um, you can find it, you know, at your, I know local bookstores are really struggling right now because of the coronavirus. Um, you can find it online in any number of places, but uh, you know, I, 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 I am, because I'm, I love local bookstores. It's where I've spent a disproportionate amount of my time. So I, I give them a shout out when I can. If you can get it there, um, try. Otherwise, yes, it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, and wherever bookstores and wherever books are sold. There's also an audiobook if you prefer to listen to it as well. Did you read the audiobook? I did not. They found a guy with oh. a much better voice than me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, Kyle no, Tate. your voice is but, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wonderful. Well, last thing, is there any way people can connect with you, social media, anything, if they want to follow along with your work? Sure. Uh, again, I write for Religion News Service, which we're a wire. So sometimes we'll, our stories will just show up in, you know, your, your, um, whether you're reading Christianity Today or the National Catholic Reporter or the Washington Post. But if you want to right. get directly to us, our website is religionnews.com. Um, if you want to follow me, you know, on Twitter is where a lot of us journalists, unfortunately, spend our time. Um, you can follow me at, at Jack, J-A-C-K-M, and then Jenkins, J-E-N-K-I-N-S. Um, I'm also on Facebook at slash Jack is writing. Um, and, you know, the, and I, again, if you get a chance to look at my book, I'd, I'd much appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much, Jack. Uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon and appreciate having you on. 